Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Ryan Huang on leave today. So joining me to break down all the market action, we're thrilled to welcome Willie Kang, the author of the Dividend Titan Finance blog. Good morning, Willie. Good morning, Michelle. Always so happy to be with you talking about market action. <laughs> yeah, let's get to the money. Let's start this morning with two blue chip companies. Now, one is the best performing SDI constituent so far this year. It's up more than 13%. The other is the worst performing blue chip on the Singapore market. Now, regular listeners might know which two companies we're zooming in, but I'm going to share a couple of hints so those at home can try to play along this morning. Both companies build ships, so they're in the same sector, but one stock is enjoying double-digit gains. The other is down more than 20% since the start of the year. One more clue, they're both listed in Singapore, but one company has shipyards along the Yangtze River in China. The other is based here. It's test your knowledge time. Willie, tell us about our two companies in focus. Sounds like a tank company, actually. I mean, they're huge behemoths in their respective fields. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, I mean, both companies, one is Yang Zijiang Shipping and the other is Citrum, of course, uh, which has recently d- done a joint venture between Capital Corp and your Sancorp Industries. That is it. So let me ask you, isn't it like ironic that these two companies are in the sec- same sector, but one is doing so much better than the other? Tell us why you think Yangtze Chang Shipbuilding is an investor favorite, while Citrium seems to be in a bear market. That's a very interesting comparison, Michelle, that you have made there and also you know, how the market have actually did this comparison as well. I mean, Yangtze Chang actually came on the back of pretty solid results since last year. I mean... Um, Last year, ever since the reopening of the COVID pandemic, you have, you know, things are resuming back to normal. You have not only travel, you also have freight and shipping. People are shipping more goods across the ocean, across to different countries. And young young shipping, shipbuilding, they are actually focused in what you call dry bulk um, ship vessels. So they actually manufacture or make some of these uh, huge shipping vessels, which allows you to ship goods and inventories across. And because people are sort of shopping more, things are also more opened up, um, the need for more of these ships naturally starts to increase because if you look at Yang Sejiang ship, uh, Shipbuilding, the company recently reported you know, record, uh, record high order book contracts, which means that in the long term, uh, it seems like there are more and more people or more and more companies wanting to have more ship vessels. While on the other hand, Citrum, it's sort of struggling trying to get its order book up. So there are a couple of things here for Citrum. After Capital Corp, after the merger of some of Capital Corp's assets and Sancorp Industries' assets, which is put into this joint venture called Citrum, uh, Citrum has been trying to actually gain contracts. So not just in the renewable energy space, um, it also tries to get contracts in its uh, focus or its niche area, which is the oil and gas um, shipbuilding or some some what might call it the FPSO market. Um, and it seems like they are trying to they are just struggling trying to get some of these contracts. It didn't really did do very well in its latest quarter because it has to write down some of its assets, um, its non-cash assets, which resulted in some of these losses. That's why you see on one hand you have Yang Zijiang shipbuilding shares are soaring. On the other hand, you have Citrum where its shares keep falling you know, month after month since last year.
On the show yesterday, Willie, I shared that Citrium lost $1.7 billion in the last fiscal year. Not a trivial amount. I'm, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what you think it might take, it's going to take for Citrium to turn its business around. I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, what's next for Citrium, right? If you look at Citrium from last year, it's from its balance sheet, even though it has quite a high leverage, it has injected a fair amount of equity or capital inside uh, in order to actually kickstart the operations. The problem with Citrium is that it's inside an industry which is very, very cyclical, which means that on good years where oil prices are high, a lot of people would want to actually get contracts or want to build uh, more oil productions uh, to actually dig more oil. So they actually will reach out to some of these um, offshore marine builders like Citrum. However, if let's say if oil prices isn't faring very well or somehow people don't want or companies don't want to dig as much oil or the demand has sort of dropped, shipbuilders like Citrum might not actually have good contracts. So that's something which Citrum has to actually um, struggle with or actually have to actually manage it. Um, it recently lost some of the contracts in its renewable energy source, which is the wind, wind farm contract. So even though there's a small um, percentage of its total revenue size or its order book size, um, it is still quite a hit for Citrum. The thing is, in such cyclical industries, um, it's actually good to actually put in more capital. That means having more cash. So if I were looking at Citrum's point of view, to turn around the business, a couple of things has to happen. I mean, obviously, you need to have growing order book size, but that comes along with the need for capital. I think Citrum, if you look at its assets, they have close to about $10 billion in assets. Roughly about 10 to 20% of it is in cash. The problem is that you need to actually have enough cash to actually um, build and start these contracts because it takes time. You know, It takes a couple of years or what you call a gestation period of a project cycle. And if Citrum does not have that sufficient cash to go out and bid for contracts, it might not be aggressive enough or active enough to seek out more contracts here. So for me, Personally, to look at Citrum to turn around its business, I think the need for more capital is actually required, especially in a very cyclical industry. All right, next up, I want to turn to the world of S3. Thanks for that considered response. I have about three more questions on both, actually. But I want to move to the world of S REITs, um, specifically data center REITs, Willie. Data centers have been hot of late because we all know companies need more space to run those servers for AI applications. But there is an article in today's Business Times arguing that the outlook for data center REITs may not be so bright after all. I wonder if you can outline the, the, the key thrust of the argument. Hmm. So it seems like for data centers, um, the, probably the reason why things aren't looking as optimistic is because there seems to be more capital expenses needed to actually invest in data centers. Number one, probably to upgrade facilities. Number two, to increase the capacity which some of these data centers servers require as the demand, for example, for artificial intelligence, the demand for technology and the internet of things starts to come around. So as a result, generally when markets see that a company needs more money to put in to invest in the business, they generally don't like it. But if you look at it from a longer term point of view, from a longer term perspective, data centers typically needs to have to be around because a lot of the technology companies, you know, you're talking about Microsoft, Apple, even NVIDIA, the need for artificial intelligence demand is continuing to grow and the right. need has the need for data centers is also there as well. So data centers are actually riding on that tailwind. 
However, you know, in, in the short term, you probably might see some impact to some of these data centers' profitability, largely because some part of the money which is making is probably going to be redirected into investing into the business itself. So that means the increase in capital ex- expenditure, the, the high capex, which a lot of investors like to call it, might actually affect or put some pressure on the profits. And for dividend investors, aficionados who love income, they probably could see this distribution getting um, under pressure because of this high capex. If we look at how data center rates have been performing, really, there seems to be quite a range, 8.5% on the low end, more than 23% on the upper end in terms of total returns for last year. Now, still, even on the low end, 8.5%, nothing to sneeze at. That's much better than SREITs overall. So what do you make of the argument that high capital expenditure, interest rates and other factors could dampen significantly the sector's returns going forward? Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the KPEX here, right, um, number one, you have higher interest costs. And if you look at the recent uh, Federal Reserve meetings and their speeches as well, it doesn't seem like interest rates would actually start to fall anytime soon. On top of that, you know, the U.S. economy has been going on pretty well. You have a very strong unemployment rate. Jobs data has still been pretty strong, which means that you continue to stay at an elevated uh, um, um, peak for quite a while. And that could also affect the financing cost for many of these data centers. Now, don't forget for properties or landlords like data centers, they eventually need to actually borrow money to invest in some of these properties or some of these data centers. And data centers, especially in very popular areas where it requires um, the demand for some of these servers, typically tend to be very expensive in terms of the property assets or the property value, which means that if data centers want to expand the business, even though they're investing this capital expenses today, it might be a bit more costly than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago when mm. interest rates was much lower. So going forward, you know, the property yield for some of these data centers might be a bit what you call tight or expensive. So they might actually suffer higher financing costs. And at the same time, they might be squeezed on the use they, they can make if they were to actually continue to expand or grow its portfolio of data centers' assets. Capital DC read down 10% since the start of the year. Capital and Ascenders read down 7% and Digital Core read off about 4%. That sort of ends off our look at specific stocks in this sector. Because I want to switch to US markets now, where stocks took a breather overnight. They inch back, in fact, from their recent record levels. The S&P 500 fell 0.4%. The Nasdaq and Dow Jones Industrial Average finished down 01 to 0.2%. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway was one of the biggest weights on the market. Initially, investors bid up Berkshire Hathaway shares after the company reported strong earnings, but then investors sold off, apparently taking a warning from Warren Buffett to heart. And we talked about this on the program in the morning yesterday. Buffett said, and it was a quote of the day, right? Eye-popping performance for Berkshire is over and that there just isn't any good bargains in his book or value investments that are big enough for his company to buy. Is... This a concern just for Berkshire Hathaway because it's such a big company, Willie, or is this something that the rest of us should worry about? I.e., was Warren Buffett trying to signal that the market might be overvalued? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point there. Um, I, I think if you look at it from two different lens here, I think Warren Buffett is really addressing his problem from Berkshire Hathaway itself. I mean, 
Berkshire Hathaway has more than $900 billion in total assets. That's much bigger than both of our sovereign wealth funds in Singapore combined, mm. which means that you cannot just take the money and just deploy it you know, into any of the assets or any of the stock market which he likes. Because if you put things in context, um, the S&P 500 index or ETFs, which actually track some of this, um, track the broader market, it's only about a few hundred billion dollars. That means if you're trying to invest, how retail investors invest uh, in, right? It's very difficult to actually find new opportunities because the larger the asset size, the harder it is to find investments which are able to generate the same kind of returns as Berkshire did, you know, years ago. Um, if you read, um, if you read um, Warren Buffett's latest letters, he did mention how his uh, ex-partner uh, or his ex-buddy Charlie Munger has said the reason why you know he had to move from deep value investing by Benjamin Graham into more of trying to buy uh, great businesses at reasonable prices is really because of this, because Charlie Munger saw how Berkshire Hathaway was growing so much, which means that more and more money is coming in, but they cannot actually deploy the same kind of strategies in today's world uh, to generate the same kind of returns. It's just very difficult. Um, it might actually be possible for retail investors like ourselves because our assets is probably much, much smaller than $900 billion. But when you're talking about huge assets, it's very difficult. You know, you, you can't just buy a single stock, for example, and just sit on our backside and wait for the returns to come in because deploying $900 billion, for example, or part of that money into one single stock or one single company would probably you know, buy out the entire company itself or move the, the, uh, the, uh, the share price of that one individual stock. So Warren Buffett is probably uh, talking about him being more careful with the kind of assets which he has. And that's why, you know, he thinks that the eye-popping performance has sort of changed over the years. And, you know, if you look at how Warren Buffett has actually started off, he did start off from a hedge fund with a much smaller capital back then, you know, say 30, 50 years ago, as compared to today, where Berkshire Hathaway is really a behemoth. Mm. A fascinating uh, analysis there. Thank you for that. In After Hours Trade, the one stock seems to be dominating headlines. And I feel it's a little bit of a blast from the past. Not ancient history, but fairly recent. The company I'm talking about is Zoom. Its shares are up 10% in After Hours action. What is driving this renewed interest in Zoom, Willie? Yeah, I mean, Zoom Zoom Communications just reported its fiscal fourth quarter earnings and it seems like it has a pretty good run. I mean, for its enterprise business, revenues was up 5%. Um, its earnings, you know, for the full year last year was also up on expectations that, you know, its cloud-based software, uh, such as video calls uh, with its chat tools and it also trying to incorporate some of its artificial intelligence into its software and its enterprise business is sort of creating this tailwind for its uh, positive financial results. And despite the fact that Zoom, you know, is a highly cap capital intensive kind of business, even though it's a software as a service business, mm -hmm. um, share prices have still continued to jump about 10% on this strong results. So it seems like it's quite a surprise. I mean, for me, looking at Zoom, um, before COVID, Zoom was really, you know, a under the radar kind of company, but when everyone was just stuck at home a couple of years back, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom's business and its share price really soared. And it's, 
it's also surprising to me, like, despite that people are starting to go back to offices to work, uh, people are starting to accept the fact that, you know, it's okay to have video conferencing. It's okay to have, you know, your Zoom conference in remote areas. And I guess that's what's driving the performance for Zoom. Yeah, Zoom shares currently trading at around 69 US dollars a share, well off their pandemic era peak of more than $500. But the company's earnings certainly giving investors hope that this stock may, pardon the pun, Zoom again. <laughs> Let's take a step back, Willie. What's on your radar for the rest of the week? Yeah, I mean, this is actually very interesting because um, I'm actually looking at some of the single sectors, um, despite the fact that the U.S. market has been, you know, soaring and doing pretty well, um, really driven by the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. But there are also very interesting uh, individual stocks, which I'm also looking at, you know, consumer stocks, for example, or consumer businesses, where they're still yet to actually clear some of the inventories. Uh, and share price have really underperformed the broader market. So I'm looking at it from a more bottom-up perspective here this time round. And um, it's pretty interesting because there are a lot of consumer companies, uh, there are a lot of apparel companies, discretionary product companies, which have reported pretty good results. But at the same time, the share price isn't really performing. So these are some of the, the, the companies which I'm actually specifically looking at. Interesting. Now here at home, OCBC and City Developments are going to be reporting earnings tomorrow. So we'll get more insight in the banking and property sectors, listeners. It is time for corporate news. Are we do it up or down style? Willie, are you a pizza lover? Oh, yeah. I, oh, I love pizza, Michelle. <laughs> you like your pizza. <laughs> and I like to have a lot of meat. I like to have cheese. Three different types of cheeses minimum. All right, our first entry this morning is famous for its pizza delivery, Domino's Pizza. How's it looking in your book, Willie? Is it an up or down this morning? Oh, this is an this is an up for me. I mean, (laughs) it has recently raised its quarterly dividends by twenty five percent. Its sales have actually grew close to three percent, and on on top of that, you know, it has continued to actually uh, record great profits. Um, really as a result, you know, of people just coming back from home. And the surprising thing about Domino's Pizza is, you mm. know, it's actually um, an e-commerce business where mm. a part of its business is driven by its online platform. So it's very different from restaurants where you have dinings. But Domino's Pizza, in some sense, is very asset-like. So it's very flexible. Uh, even during COVID, a couple of years back, uh, it was also pretty resilient because, people were just buying pizzas online as opposed to, you know, wanting to dine in here. So I I guess that's the advantage of Domino's Pizza. That's really interesting. Yeah, Domino's always was a sort of call and then you pick it up kind of business. So it made the transition to e-commerce, being a real e-commerce driven business quite easily. Um, I like that comparison. In the US, uh, Domino's used to promise delivery within 30 minutes or your pizza was free back then. And this morning, Domino's may have an even better promise for you shareholders. It's hiking its quarterly dividend by 25 Certainly an up. Domino's also promising that one billion US dollar share buyback plan. So uh, if you're having a pizza, I think, I don't know, is beer the perfect thing to drink with it? Mm, beer and some <laughs> wine. I mean, I would, lo- I would really love to have a glass right now. Now that you have mentioned it. <laughs> it's never too early. <laughs> beer time. All right, let's talk about acai beer. Is it an up or down in your books this morning? Well, I think... Based on its share price and how it has actually performed, uh, this is a down for me for Asahi Glass. I mean, if you look at the year-to-date performance, it hasn't really been performing uh, as well as compared to the other Nikkei stocks because 
since the start of this year, I, I think it has been uh, trading sort of sideways. And I guess largely the reason why is because for Asahi Glass, it tends to actually hold on slightly higher debt or leverage. And it's also a company where it is trying to actually branch out overseas. That means it's trying to borrow money in terms of its local currency yen and trying to go out to actually acquire more businesses in the long term. But so far, um, Asahi Glass hasn't really been, you know, perform well. And I guess that's what's disappointing the market. Yeah, the Asahi Group is on the hunt for companies to buy. So it's actively looking at acquisition targets so it can increase overseas sales, particularly in the US. Unfortunately, the company not that optimistic. If you want to toast a takeover in the US, Asahi officials say you likely have to wait until next year. So I'm going to give the Japanese beer maker a down this morning. Next up, I have to say I'm a big fan of uh, Hopa Corporation's Tiger Balm. Not so much the ointment, but the patches. You know, I had to work through COVID. I was overseas mm. moderating an event and that saved me. Uh, apparently a lot of people are Tiger Bomb fans as well because Hopa's profits are up nearly 60%. The company netted more than $112 million during the second half of the year. Definitely an up. What do you think? I think this is great. This is, this is what I call a very sleepy, quiet business. Mm. And it's really under the radar because it's owned by the We family. But not a lot of people actually knows about Hopa. Um, people think that they actually... Uh, one of their crown jewels, of course, is the, the the tiger balm ointment, and that has performed really well. And like what you said, Michelle, I think when people are just stuck at home, or when things also at the same time are starting to travel, when you have your conferences, when you're also doing your moderating, the need for some of these patches uh, have also started to increase. And you can see how its latest results uh, it posted a recent it recently posted net profits of $112 million, and that's an, a 60, close to 60% increase as compared to last year, which really shows how, what I call, capital efficient this business is because you don't, need, need, don't really need to do much marketing. People generally know the brand, and it has been you know, around for a really long time, and I guess that's what's uh, driving the pretty good performance for Hopa recently, and this is an up for me. I agree with you. Hopa's share price, so basically flat. It's barely budged since the start of the year. Maybe these latest earnings numbers could give it a boost. Let's look at SIIC Environment, Willie. SIIC Environment's profits plunged 90% during the fourth quarter of the year. Uh, in part, some say because of those high interest rates. What do you see when you look at SIIC? I look at a very capital-intensive wastewater treatment business. Because on one hand, the thing about wastewater treatment is this, is that it gets a lot of concession agreements from the local governments in China or provincial government. But the thing is, all these contracts are actually at least 20, 25 years out. That means the amount of profits which they can get is divided, you know, um, equally across the, you know, two decades to three or 30 years, which means that if interest rates actually shoots up today, the amount of profits will still remain consistent and that could actually affect the profits. Of course, in China here, uh, when you have lower interest rates, uh, it isn't really a problem. The problem comes when you have some of these um, concession agreements uh, where the income or the profits are actually very thin. So you might not actually get the agreed profits or the, the, the profits from the agreements itself, uh, and that could actually result in a drop in their revenues, um, higher cost as well, which could result in a sort of a poorer performance.
Yeah, I agree with you there. I want to check in on local markets now. The SDI currently trading down about 0.44% to 31.57. The Straits Times Index started the week off on a bearish note yesterday, falling almost half a percent to 31.71. UOL was the worst performer amongst blue chips. It fell 3.6% ahead of its earnings announcement today. On the other end of the table, uh, Venture Corp, the best performing SDI constituent, jumped 5% despite receiving a ratings downgrade from RHB. Uh, how's the Straits Times Index looking this morning, Willie? Yep, so the Straits Times Index have opened slightly lower, which is down 0.4%. Uh, so far, the Singapore banks have opened mixed. You have UOB, which is up 0.1%. DBS is down 0.09%. What is interesting is that uh, Capital Land Invest continues to sell off, uh, which is down 0.7%, largely because of it's not so uh, positive third quarter results. I mean, Capital Land Invest after all, it's a very cyclical business where they actually develop properties and then once it's completed, they sell it off. So at a time where they have a lot of project gestation, that means project under development, they might not actually have very strong sales and this results in the market being disappointed. Absolutely fantastic, Willie. This has been a power-packed session of Market View. Thank you for joining me. I love it, Nisha. <laughs> Always <laughs> love speaking with you. Willie Kang is the author of the Dividend Titan Finance blog. This is Market View. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you for your company. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.